Welcome to the Lessons from Lab and Life podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that this podcast offers you some new perspective. This is the first episode in our COVID-19 Researcher Spotlight series, and today I'm joined by Brian Rabe, who's currently a graduate student at Harvard Medical School, where he normally studies retinal development. As the coronavirus spread, Brian decided to take some of the new technologies he'd been using to explore gene regulatory networks, studying tiny little embryonic mouse eyes, and apply them to improving and advancing coronavirus detection methods. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your recent um, MedArchive publication. Yeah, um, so it's it's kind of funny. I, I usually study actually retinal development, but uh, given uh, the current pandemic, uh, and I'd heard about this this RT lamp technology from NAB, I decided I would try my hand at it before we uh, closed everything down, and I got some promising results initially. So I actually got to stay on and and pursue it. Um, it's nice because it's it's essentially an alternative diagnostic assay for the virus. Uh, that's proven to be quite sensitive, uh, and it's really, really fast. And what's nice is you don't need any specialized equipment to run it. So unlike a lot of the, the QRT-PCR tests that are available that need really expensive machines and, and a lot of personnel training to run, this is an assay that could be run, you know, potentially in a van with a heat block. Uh, so we really wanted to increase accessibility of testing, and I think that's what we've been able to achieve. Yeah, so how were you able to achieve that? Yeah, so it began just um, really just ordering these RT lamp reagents from from you guys, from NAB, uh, and then designing several different uh, primer sets. So designing them to hopefully work. Uh, it can be a little hard to predict which assays will work and which ones won't. And we got lucky, and actually the first one I designed um, uh, worked really robustly. It worked very quickly, so the, the amplification happened very, very rapidly, and it was a clear readout. And... Um, importantly, it had a very low background. So a positive result with this, with this set of primers does appear to be, you know, pretty much 100% of the time a real positive, uh, which is definitely necessary if we, if we want to move into the diagnostic field. Yeah, that's fantastic. So how quick is quick? So, uh, from actually adding your sample to the reaction, uh, it only takes 30 minutes. Uh, and then you get a very clear readout. I think, uh, you know, sort of peaking at, at reactions as they run, a lot of them will turn even sooner. But uh, for maximum sensitivity, we found 30 minutes works really well. Well, that's great. And what kind of samples are you working with? Well, for my work, it was all reconstituted samples. So I work in, in, a, in a biology lab and an academic lab. And especially as this whole pandemic was progressing, there was no way I was going to be getting direct access to patient samples. You know, I'm, not a, sure. I'm not medically trained. I'm not at a hospital. Uh, so what I was working with was an RNA control uh, that came from actually Swiss Bioscience, and then I reconstituted samples. That's how it basically means I stuck a swab down my nose many, many times to make, <laughs> to make essentially samples, whether they were nasopharyngeal or oral swabs or just collecting saliva in a tube. And then I would spike in these control RNAs to sort of serve as as a as a fake virus in these samples to see. Uh, would the reaction still run with things like mucus from a nasal swab or saliva uh, to see how well they would run and see how low I could push the amount of, of RNA that I was adding and still get a result? 
And you mentioned the ease of the readout and um, the color change. Could you tell me a little bit more about um, what the readout in this um, lamp reaction is? Of course. So the, one of the really nice things about lamp is that it generates enormous quantities of DNA. Um, and the quantity generated is so enormous that every single base being added kicks off a proton. And with so much DNA being added uh, or being being polymerized, you end up actually resulting in a pH change as long as your solution is buffered. So the way this whole system works, and, I, and you, know, you can read about this more on the NED site, is it's a non-buffered reaction with a pH indicator dye that turns from red to yellow when the solution is acidified. Uh, and it makes the, the readout really, really clear. I mean, it goes from being this sort of purplish red to being a bright yellow. Uh, and the nice thing with this primer set is it's really been very binary. There have been some reaction or primer sets in the past that people have been trying, but they sometimes get these sort of orange reactions that are that are kind of right on the line. But the sure. nice thing about this primer set is that it's been really, really binary. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and how did you get involved in this project? Oh, well, a lot of credit there goes to my principal investigator, Connie Sepko. Basically, I, I knew about this, this reaction mix that you guys have been making for a while. Um, I'm kind of, you know, I'm a molecular biology nerd, so I read through catalogs from all these companies, and I like to keep up to date with what's going on. And I, I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, that's really cool. I'd love to try that sometime, even though it has nothing to do with what I normally work with. Uh, but then, you know, this whole pandemic hit, and I realized that, you know, there, that maybe we were a little behind in developing uh, new tests. So I just went to my boss and I said, you know, I have this idea. Do you think I could try it? And being the, the supportive mentor that she is, she said, go for it. Well, that's awesome. And how do you, how are you addressing sensitivity with the assay? Yeah. So we've, you know, what, what's nice is that the assay, the, the primer set that we developed appears to be really quite sensitive, uh, at least when I'm using RNA uh, controls. The trick when we went over to clinical samples with our clinical collaborators over at MDH is uh, a protocol, sort of a sample preparation step that comes before the assay, uh, a really rapid step based on a protocol that actually came out of the road called Hudson that does a couple of really neat things all in one step. Uh, it inactivates all of the virions in your sample. You're basically boiling your sample uh, with a few chemical additives. Uh, and that's really nice because it makes the sample safe for the people who are actually running all the tests. Um, at the same time, it also breaks open all of these vi viruses uh, so that they actually release the genomic RNA, uh, which is what the sample is, or what the reaction is actually testing. So it makes the RNA accessible to the enzyme. And then it also inactivates patient enzymes, samples, things like uh, RNases that would immediately destroy that RNA under normal circumstances. This protocol also completely inactivates them, and we found that the sample is actually quite stable after that. And so the nice thing there is that alone, combined with the primer set we've been working with, has given us really impressive sensitivity uh, down to, say, 40 virions per microliter. And I think wow. the next, yeah, it's been really impressive. Um, I've been, you know, we've been really grateful with our, for our clinical collaborators' help in determining that. Um, and what's, I think, is sort of next in the, the research pipeline, although not so much what I'll be doing, but what a lot of people are looking at now, is what level of sensitivity do you actually need in order to identify people who are infectious? 
Um, mm. And I think there's there's growing data that, you know, of course, out of an abundance of caution, we've been, you know, anyone who throws any sort of positive, you know, with the QRT-PCR test, which are even more sensitive, um, that we're counting, we're considering them to be infectious, but we don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, we also developed a really crude purification uh, and concentration protocol that uh, uses some really widely available reagents, things like basically glass powder that's used in the ceramics industry. Um, mm-hmm. And a nifty little protocol that's really, really cheap and really easy to run and in most cases doesn't even need a centrifuge and can allow someone to further concentrate the RNAs found in a sample uh, to the point that you can increase that sensitivity down to even one virion per microliter. Um, at least that's what it looks like in, with the RNA controls. Um, and what's nice about this and sort of how, why we were able to do it is uh, the lamp reaction has proven itself to be very, very robust to a lot of things that would normally inhibit enzymatic reactions. And so we're able to do this really fast and cheap and crude purification and the reaction is still able to tolerate any small amounts of inhibitors that get carried through. And that's been really impressive. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So um, the additions of um, chemical agents to help to help lyse the cells and, um, and prevent RNA degradation, uh, those don't have any effect on um, the color change or the buffers or the other components of the reaction? No. So you do, I know I had to fiddle around with them to make sure that the, the reagents I was using were at the proper pH when they're added. Um, mm. But luckily, they don't appear to have enough buffering capacity or anything like that to throw off the reaction. Well, that's incredible. So what kind of samples have you tested so far? I know your paper was mostly focused on nasopharyngeal swabs, um, either sort of with or without the, this, um, this RNA um, protection treatment. Um, but what other have you tried other samples, or is that something that's coming in the future? Yeah, so I've actually tried, uh, and the, I think this is something as far as clinical samples that's in the pipeline. But I've tried with reconstituted samples straight saliva, and that's wow. been something else where where Lamp has has I think outperformed certain other tests in that um, the saliva doesn't appear to be particularly inhibitory to this reaction, especially when you run this in activation step first. Um, I think a lot of other reaction types. Um, that are sort of assays that are being developed uh, tend to be much more sensitive to those, but the two enzymes in LAMP appear to be incredibly robust. Wow, that's amazing and um, really promising to hear. So where do you see COVID-related research heading in the near future? That's a good question, and I've been talking to a lot of people uh, who are involved in this. Well, on the one hand, uh, we're sort of creating, there's a group led by Mike Springer at HMS that's going to be comparing a lot of these assays head-to-head. So there will be several different mm-hmm. LAMP assays. So the, the primer set that I developed, as well as some that have been developed at MED and Cornell, uh, and I believe at least one or two other places. Then Mike Springer's lab has come up with an RTRPA-based assay. And then there's a CRISPR-based assay coming out of the Broad, uh, although those either have LAMP or RTRPA back end. Um, and so they're going to be testing those head-to-head with the exact same clinical samples in order to get a really good idea as to how they compare. Um, outside of the actual diagnostics, there's also been a lot of uh, a lot more work and more attention being paid to sort of upstream. Um, everything from can we get enough swabs? So do we need to go to saliva or can we can we stick with swabs to what sample types actually have enough virus in them to detect well? 
Um, you know, can you swab other places? And you, can you, again, can you just have someone spit in a tube? Um, and also sort of perfecting a lot of the, the collection protocols. Uh, we've been talking a lot about, you know, what can a patient do themselves so that they reduce the risk of infecting whoever is testing them? Uh, you know, obviously we think a patient can spit in a tube on their own and probably close it and spritz it with disinfectant. Um, so we're looking at, at things like that. And this is sort of leaving my wheelhouse very, very quickly. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are focused on this. And then downstream of this, people are looking at, at ways of, of sort of connecting these results to contact tracers and things like that so that we can um, hopefully contain any potential sort of little outbreaks that may occur in the future. And then there's just how do we deploy these things? Do we collect at a lot of different places and send samples to one centralized location for testing? Do we send sort of little pop-up labs to a bunch of different places? Things like you were worried about a school. Could you send a team in a van with heat blocks to a school and have them run tests? Uh, how do you do surveillance? Things like that. So there's a lot of thought being put into that as well. Well, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I often wonder, you know, when we're going to be at the point where there's sort of a, a home test that someone could do. Someone could, um, you know, spit in a tube at home um, and could it potentially, that tube potentially contain the right reagents or, you know, um, maybe you need to aliquot some, some specific volume. You know, do you envision this being something that eventually could move into home use or maybe you spit in a tube and put it in the mail? Yeah, I think any of those are, are good options. Um, you know, if you have a sous vide at home, it's very easy. Uh, we've actually tried that, just, you know, a, a immersion heater in water. And you set it to 65, and that's really all you need. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of people have been looking at, at how you would sort of formulate a kit or maybe a device to make it easy to run. Uh, but, yeah, I think a lot of people are looking at at-home diagnostics. Yeah, and I'll be really interested to see that study um, from the Springer Lab of HMS come out because, you know, certainly there's been a lot of uh, fast and furious movement in terms of developing diagnostics um, to detect COVID. Um, so it'd be really great to sort of see those compared in terms of um, specificity and sensitivity. Oh, absolutely. And I have to give a lot of credit to Mike. Um, he's put together a great group and he's really, really built a sense of uh, camaraderie. camaraderie. Um, you know, he, the way he sees it, you know, his test may work in a different way than ours, but he likes to think of us not in competition, but as sort of supplemental to one another. We have assays that work in different ways. They may have different pros and different cons, and really importantly, different supply lines. Uh, so potentially, if, if we need to be producing you know, millions of tests, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions a week, if we're thinking worldwide, uh, having a number of different tests that are being made in different ways could be really helpful. Yeah, certainly. And I think that that's a great example um, of the, the global camaraderie that's really come out of developing diagnostic tests and the, and the free sharing of um, scientific knowledge, you know, that's really surrounded the um, crisis. Definitely. So, Brian, did you find that compared to your normal research, there was a particular sense of urgency with this project? Oh, absolutely. I mean, definitely, you know, we were always thinking that this pandemic is progressing. Every time you check the news, you see that, you know, it's spreading and yet our testing capacity is, is not growing enough to meet the needs. And then, of course, states are, are beginning their reopening and, and we're worried that without enough testing capabilities, we could just be looking at another 
outbreak if we don't if we don't catch things quickly. So there was definitely a lot of urgency. Um, what also I think helped was working with other groups developing these assays. You know, we were all motivating one another. We were sharing results. It became a really fluid and very rapid process. Um, so tell us something good. Do you have any um, good stories or reflections about your time um, in, 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 you know, um, the, the Massachusetts uh, sort of stay at home um, recommendation uh, that you could share with our audience? Well, um, I can say that it's, it's been nice to see in, in a lot of places like I'm out here in Waltham. Um, and, and people are definitely taking taking things very seriously. I, I do see you know people are, are really practicing social distancing. Um, I know you can hear on the news about you know things happening at various grocery stores and all that, but here it's been very. I think everyone's been sort of you know we're in this together, uh, kind of kind of spirit. Uh, you know those sort of drive by graduation or birthday party uh, celebrations have really really taken off here. It's, I think every evening we see three or four of them go by. Um, so it's nice to see people supporting one another in a safe way. Um, and beyond that, I mean, it's been nice to keep all the plants in my lab alive. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of time to, to um, sort of focus on uh, some of the more simple things in life. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for... Um, you know, your work, uh, I think it's been really important that, you know, you picked up this project. You were obviously able to identify some, some primers that made a huge difference in this, in the sensitivity and specificity of the test. Um, and I think that it'll go a long way towards really bringing uh, a COVID diagnostic uh, to, to more places, to more rural places, you know, that might not be able to for the instrumentation um, to carry out some of the RTQPCR tests that are more prevalent now. Oh, definitely. And having a lot of family um, back in, in rural Kentucky, yeah, that's definitely been something I've been thinking about. Yeah, it's nice to sort of know, um, it's nice to know where people's motivations lie. Um, and I think a lot of our motivations lie in in protecting our friends and family and loved ones um, from this pandemic. Um, so thank you so much for your work toward that. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in for this episode. As always, check out the transcript of this podcast for helpful links to further resources. And please join us for next episode when I'll be interviewing Feng Zhang of the Broad Institute along with Jonathan Gutenberg and Omar Aboudier of the McGovern Institute of MIT about their recent publication describing Stop COVID, an assay which combines isothermal amplification with CRISPR-based detection methods. So be sure to catch the next episode and hear from the scientists currently making major breakthroughs in coronavirus detection and diagnostics.